Welcome to my podcast, Absurd Art. I'm Liz, and here on Absurd Art, I will be highlighting the crazy absurd stories about art, artists, museums, and everything in between. I'm also going to be discussing a bit about art history, so if that's something that typically bores you, hopefully I'll make it a little bit more interesting for you. This is a new podcast, so you can definitely show your support, if you'd like, by subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts and telling your friends about my podcast if it's something that you think that they would be interested in. So, Happy New Year! Uh, It's 2021, and we're leaving 2020 behind. We have a full new year full of new possibilities and new creative energy. I'm wishing you the best for the new year. Let's make it a good one. So... My last episode, I discussed the monoliths that were popping up in Utah, and I talked about the claims behind them and some of the theories. And there still isn't really a true answer, but I can say that I haven't heard of any more monoliths popping up since I recorded that episode. So who knows? Maybe the aliens heard me. (laughs) The aliens have better things to do, like I said. Today, I will be discussing... A documentary that I watched on Netflix called Carlos Almaraz, Playing with Fire. Now, I have to be honest with you, there will definitely be spoilers in this podcast, so if you do plan on watching it, please go watch it before you listen to this so I don't give you all the spoilers. But if you don't want to watch it, I'm here for you. I'll give you all the spoilers and you don't have to watch it. (laughs) I watched it, so you don't have to. (laughs) So I really enjoyed the film in the sense that they really made him just seem like a regular person who was interested in different cultures and ended up making it big in his art career. He was constantly, constantly just creating everywhere he went. He did more than just painting. He did a little bit of photography and a little bit of poetry and even performance art, just a little bit. But what he's mostly known for is being a main player in the Chicano art movement in LA. So let's get into it. He was originally from Mexico City and he was born in 1941. They don't talk much about his early life in Mexico and there isn't much online about it. And he was first exposed to art through the church. Uh, It's actually kind of funny. He was afraid to go to church because he thought there was a painting of a gorilla on the wall. But later he figured out that it was just a painting of John the Baptist with a beard and a fur coat. (laughs) And through this, he realized that art and specifically painting is an illusion and it can be whatever you want it to be. And he thought of this as a sense of power. It gave him the power to want to create and create these illusions. I'm not sure what my first realization of art was, but it's nice that he has a little story that goes along with the very beginning. So his parents moved to Chicago to work in the booming steel industry, uh, and then they later moved to Los Angeles by train. This was a really pivotal moment for him because he's moving to a new place, And he's getting to experience all these new things. And the train really shows up a lot in his artwork because for him it symbolizes a new beginning and a new adventure. And it comes up in his paintings a lot. So yeah, they moved to Chicago, then they moved to L.A. So he lived in East L.A., which is what he called the Barrio, which is a predominantly Hispanic community. There he saw the differences between the cultures between, you know, the Hispanic community 
and the other communities in L.A. So he saw the differences between these different cultures, and he fit in to the best of his ability. He made lots of friends in high school, and to me, from the pictures that they saw in the documentary, it really looked like he had a good time. He was really interested in TV and film, and really admired Walt Disney. He never worked with him, but he was really fascinated by all the films that Walt Disney created, and that was another source of inspiration for him. He even made like little flip books, which he also made more of later in his career. So once he finished his schooling, he moved to New York City in 1962 to 1965. It was inspiring for him, but he still had his West Coast influences, uh, where so he didn't really feel like he fit in all the way. But in the 60s, he was up against some tough competition in New York. That's where all the big artists were. The style in the 60s was very minimal than what he was used to. So he fit into this minimal style by using a grid pattern and by sometimes adding colors, but everything was just so minimal that he really made like a lot of muted artwork. But that also has to do with his mental health as well, because he was experimenting a lot with his sexuality and not in a very safe way. Uh, he is considered a bisexual. Now, there is a bit of a trigger warning here relating to sexual abuse. So if you're not interested in hearing about this, just go ahead and skip like 30 seconds. As a child, he was abused by two different people, um, one of his uncles and a priest. And so he was dealing with those demons, which must have been really hard, especially in New York and a new city. This was a really dark time for him, and it shows in his artwork, from being very minimal to very dark. His friends were worried, and so was he. He knew he wasn't in like a good place at all. So he checked himself into a mental hospital, which was probably for the best. And it was there that he became really fascinated with figures, and he would paint the other patients. Once he finished his time in the hospital, he started therapy and started traveling the world in hopes to find himself. I really wish that the film would elaborate more on this. I couldn't really find much about his travels at all. I looked a little bit deeper online, but there isn't really a lot of documentation on Carlos Almaraz, which I find really interesting because he is such an influential, or he was such an influential person in the Chicano art movement in the 60s. Alas, with his travels, he didn't really find what he was looking for, and so he ended up going back to L.A., so in 1971, at age 29, he was diagnosed with pancreatitis due to his excessive drinking. He basically almost drank himself to death. He was in a coma for 41 days. 41 days. That is absolutely crazy. Can you imagine being in a coma for 41 days? Like, And he was given his last rites. Like, they thought he was going to die. He says that he felt like he was between life and death, and he had a lot of hallucinations. He says that he met aliens and they taught him a universal language that has just a few symbols. And these symbols often show up a lot in his artwork. They're kind of just like X's and, um, you know, angular, minimal shapes. But once he got out of the hospital, he decided he would never drink again and that he would really focus on his art and there was one piece that came out after this called The Return, 
it's where he's in a hospital bed and there's UFOs and aliens and pyramids and just everything kind of happening around him while he's just sitting in the hospital bed. And six months later, his brother died. And that was something that really haunted him because his brother was checking in on him in the hospital, you know, really being there for him. And so it was like the tables had turned and Carlos felt a lot of guilt because of this, which is something else he had to live with with his mental health. So back to the Chicano art. So there was a whole Chicano movement in L.A., and it was during the 60s, during the Vietnam War. They saw it as their own new culture because while they are Mexican-Americans, they didn't completely fit into one culture in Mexico or in the U.S. is how they felt. And so they decided that they were Chicanos. In the film, they have Edward James Almos talking there, which I didn't really know who he is, but I looked it up and apparently he was in Miami Vice, and now he does things with UNICEF. He's an ambassador for UNICEF, and he's very active as an activist. <laughs> so he says is that Carlos was not Chicano. He was Mexican, but he became Chicano, which I find very beautiful because it was something that he just really enjoyed and something that he really wanted to fit into. So later, Carlos brought together four Chicano artists, including Frank Romero, Robert De La Rocha, and Gilbert Luan, uh, and they called themselves the Lost Four. And it was here that they decided to make collaborative artwork. They worked on collective projects for the Los Angeles County Metropolitan Transportation Authority. Yes, they have an acronym for that. <laughs> It was here that they created a big mural with spray paint and they just collaborated and made a bunch of lines and squiggles and honestly it turned out so beautiful and they have part of it hanging in a museum today in LA. The Lost Four didn't really sustain because they all had different goals and Frank and Carlos, um, they had a lot of issues and there was one time where they got in a physical fight. And the group ended just because that was kind of the turning point where it was like, okay, yeah, let's, let's not do this anymore. <laughs> so in the L.A. art scene, um, Carlos wasn't really a part of it necessarily. He was kind of doing his own thing because most of all the popular L.A. artists were living in Venice and they had their own community and they talked to themselves, they talked to each other. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure they probably talked to themselves too, but they talked to each other and they, you know, bummed ideas off of each other. They collaborated together and Carlos wasn't really a part of that. He didn't live in LA or he didn't live in Venice. He lived in LA, but his stuff was more unique because he was kind of separated from their ideals and their energy. Um, so he played a lot with the idea on masks, not COVID masks, but the ones that change your appearance, which I find really interesting because it shows that he struggled with his identity a lot, with his sexuality. So in the 1980s, he fell in love. Ooh la la. <laughs> he fell in love with Elsa Flores, and she's a Chicana activist and photographer. She would photograph him. That's the reason why that he is one of the most photographed artists, which is funny because there's like no information and his Wikipedia page is super tiny. Anyway, so in the 80s, he fell in love with 
Elsa. And they had a kid. He was very happy. They got married. He was very, very happy. After he had his kid and got married. So after he had a kid and got married to Elsa, he started taking trips back and forth to New York City and working with the gallery that he used to work with called Alan Stone. And he showed his work. And Jack Nicholson, who is an actor, came in and to one of the galleries and wanted to buy one of Carlos's pieces. And so he bought it. And then from there, everything just blew up. People loved the car crash in Echo Park paintings, which I will talk about right now. (laughs) So the car crashes is kind of what he's most famous for. They're just really bright, vibrant photos of car crashes. Some of them are two cars some of them are one car running into a pole but they have so much energy and it really makes you feel something he says that it compares to frankenstein in the sense that the machine turns on the person who made it it conveys how technology can get out of control and also how cultures can clash but all in all these paintings are very intense you know they're not very gory But with all the vibrancy from the colors, it just really shows why those are the famous paintings that he has. Some of them are, you know, going off of highways. Some of them are just head-on collisions. You'd think a car crash would be really gory, but the way that he paints it just makes it look so beautiful. And he also does a lot of paintings in a park called Echo Park in L.A., those paintings like they almost kind of look like Monet because there's the bridge and flowers and colors. I like to think that he's kind of the Mexican Monet in a sense because just his paintings have so much vibrancy and color. He really knows how to work with colors. So once he made it big it was time to let the gallery do all the work and for him to just create. His wife really wanted to go to Hawaii, and he wasn't so keen on it, but finally he gave in, and his daughter went along as well. She was six at the time, and he stayed true to the car crashes, but he also began to paint the scenery in Hawaii. Waterfalls, plants, everything. And these are some of my favorites. In 1987, Carlos was diagnosed with AIDS, which ultimately led to his death. His family and him really kept it under wraps because they didn't want it to affect their lives in the sense that kids would be scared to play with their daughter. And neither his wife or the child got it. It was a really dark time for him. He kind of saw it as his life catching up to him, like his previous sins we're catching up, which was, he really felt like this was payback and retribution for his previous sins. This was the point in his life where he had it all. He had a loving wife and family, kid, a booming career, and he was just constantly creating and doing what he loved. But he did struggle a lot with his identity, so it's really sad, but that is how he ended up dying. But overall, I want to leave it on a positive note. (laughs) From what I gather from the film, everyone really loved him. He definitely seemed like a very good guy. He sees paintings as a time capsule, and he gives people in the future a perspective of what life was like in the past, which I think is really beautiful because it is. like It is like a time capsule. He definitely influenced a lot of the Chicano artists, especially in L.A., And he left behind a lot of beautiful art that was filled with colors and, for me, freedom. I feel like he really 
gave everyone a sense of freedom with his art. I'd like to touch on his identity and how he really struggled with it. So while he was Mexican, he felt like he was more American because he grew up in America since he was around the age of nine, I believe. And so he was Chicano, but this was the beginning of what it meant to be Chicano. Also, with his sexuality, he struggled with that a lot. And also, even his name. Like, his mom named him Carlos, but he felt like a Charles. And so he would go by Charles sometimes, and then he would go by Carlos sometimes. But ultimately, his mom named him Carlos, and that's what he went by. Another part of his identity that he struggled with was communism question mark <laughs> the film really doesn't explain this much but apparently at one point he was a communist then he was a maoist then he was a marxist apparently he liked the idea of being a communist that it was against the norm and that that's why he wanted to be a communist so yeah carlos almaraz was an amazing artist it's really sad that there isn't all that much information out there on him but, and that the documentary has so many holes. I feel like the documentary was kind of made for someone who is already a fan and who already knows about him and not someone like me who is just learning about him. Um, but he definitely is a very fascinating character and I would love, I would love to know more. But then again, with a lot of this stuff, it is hard to know everything about someone, <laughs> especially whenever they've passed. But he really did lay the foundation for the Chicano art scene and inspired so many artists to come, which I find really beautiful. He definitely left behind a very strong legacy. And he survived by his daughter and his wife. She is still very active with painting and photography and she's very creative. And that's actually how they met. I think I forgot to mention that part. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, so that's it for today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed this. Uh, if you did, please subscribe. Please share it with a friend or on your social media. It would be greatly appreciated. I hope you have a great start to your new year, 2021, baby. And I will see you next Monday. Bye.